0: You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. I want to remind the listeners that if you want to contact me, you can send me an email. My address is jmshapiro at yahoo.com. And that's J-A-Y-M-S-H-A-P-I-R-O at Yahoo.com. So please feel free to write to me because uh, I want to hear from my listeners and I would like uh, more than just to hear from them, but know what they think about things that I'm saying. I'll be more than glad to respond to them. Right now, we are in a period between Israel Independence Day and Jerusalem Day. Uh, Jerusalem Day, by the way, is celebrated only in Jerusalem. I really don't uh, understand why the rest of the country, the very fact that the city of Jerusalem became under Jewish control after almost 2,000 years. I think it's something that should be celebrated by the entire country, not, not just by those here living in Jerusalem. But that's a uh, story unto itself. I'd like to say a few more words about the 75th anniversary of Jewish country, of Jewish independence. So the truth of the matter is that, I've spoken about this before, but I wanna emphasize it because we have always reminded ourselves of the generation, the good luck that we have. We can look at our tremendous pride, tremendous satisfaction at the achievements these that have been uh, occurred so far, Particularly when you compare where we are today with the terrible situation when we first got our independence back in nineteen forty-eight, when we had almost no air force, we had a, a, a citizens' army that was really weren't wasn't well trained and things of that nature. And you compare that to the way we are today; it really is something we have to be thankful for. That's why many of us say the prayer of Hallel on Israeli Independence Day. There are some people who say, well, you shouldn't say Hallel because it is a special prayer that was instituted by the rabbis. But the later rabbis in our generation have said one indeed should say Hallel. The question is whether you should say it with a blessing or without a blessing. But it's important to to recognize the fact, the wonderful fact, that we are in a situation now we have been in for, for 2,000 years. Israel has built one of the world's strongest armies, a military de- deterrent force, army, navy, air force. It's really, thank God, really nice. Uh, and at the same time, in the last several years, we've implemented peace agreements and normalization with the major Arab countries. And the major Arab countries include uh, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. Now, let's take a look at the economy. Uh, the, Israel has a strong economy that's appreciated by everyone internationally. And how do we know this? But because the evidence is given by its credit rating, There's companies like Moody's, which gives us an A1, and Fitch, which uh, gives us an A+. And despite Moody's recent decision to reduce Israel's credit outlook from positive to stable, its credit rating was not affected. Now, since Israel was founded, this country has successfully absorbed Absorbed more than 3 million immigrants, many of whom needed its support in housing, work, and food, and all the other basic things of life. And it's interesting, it's not as if you take a big country like the United States, you, know, you say they have, uh, over a period of time of 75 years, they've absorbed 3 million immigrants that. That's three million immigrants who came into a country of hundreds of million people. Israel came into into the three million immigrants, essentially doubled the size of the country. Now, if you take a look at what Israel has done in the field of science, Israel regularly breaks new ground. the 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 number of Israelis have won Nobel prizes. Uh, The number of high tech companies, and the high scores of Israeli universities and international rankings. Israeli culture is flourishing. It's literature, it's poetry, theater, cinema, and music, all in Hebrew, and in many cases also translated into English and other foreign languages. are tremendous. You open up a newspaper here in Israel, particularly on Friday, uh, the Friday edition in Israel is uh, essentially equivalent to the Sunday edition in other countries. We have those newspapers on, uh, on uh, Saturday, and Sunday's uh, paper is just say, like any other week. They said a the big paper in newspapers on Friday – And uh, you look and see the number of things going on in terms of academia and the number of uh, shows that are happening, musicals and things of that nature. It's unbelievable. It's really outstanding. And many times you can go to a show that's in Hebrew and above the stage. If you go to a play, for example, above the stage, you find a translation uh, generally in English and or in Russian. So that explains why there are some companies, I forget their name, they do these uh, happiness surveys to say which countries are happy. So this helps to explain why most Israelis are happy to live in their home country or, in fact, one of the happiest people in the world. All these successes have been achieved despite constant threats. We have security threats, wars, been a lot of. Since I came to this country in 1969, there have been a number of wars. I don't even remember how many. I'm, I'm not uh, going to bo- uh, bother the uh, listeners by going over the list of the wars. There's all kind of emergencies and we have to divert a massive share of national economic resources unmatched by other countries to security requirements. Security is a major part of our life here. Now, one thing that is not getting resolved is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it looks like there's no solution for the immediate future. The gaps between the sides uh, over the West Bank, East Jerusalem, uh, the, the um, Palestinians demand the right of return. The, uh, there are many of them who simply don't recognize the right of an independent Jewish state to exist. Uh, Israelis may have become accustomed to this, but we step aside and look at daily life in a society that aspires to be modern and democratic, it's highly unreasonable. You could you pick up the paper any day. I'm uh, I'm uh, preparing this broadcast on uh, Sunday. The uh, it's the seventh uh, of May, and I opened up the newspaper this morning, and it turns out that uh, there were a number of terror attacks. A number of terrorists have been caught. Uh, the people, the terrorists who, caught, uh, who uh, killed several Israelis uh, about two weeks ago have been caught. Uh, interestingly enough, they were caught in the city of Shem, which is under Palestinian authority control. The Israeli army uh, went in uh, based on information that they received, captured and, uh, uh, the terrorists and killed a number of them who tried to fight back. We also have a problem that under the Palestinian Authority, a lot of armed gangs are growing, and that's something we have to worry about, while at the same time, we're worried about the countries around us who are threatening us, like Iran. So the very fact that when you go out in the street, for example, in Jerusalem, where I live, it's like normal, you get on a bus, you speak to friends, you go to a theater, you go shopping. Where it's it's quite normal. Uh, when you stop for a moment and think about the fact we're surrounded by people who would like to destroy us, it's remarkable how normal it is. As a matter of fact, one of the things I like to do, my wife and I go to the Shuk, which is the market here in Jerusalem, particularly on Friday, and it's always crowded. You can hardly move. People are buying. People are sitting in coffee shops. It's really wonderful. As a matter of fact, I'm quite sure that a large number of people uh, I shouldn't say a large number, but obviously a significant number of people who are hanging around in the shook are security people. You can't tell by looking at them. They don't go around carrying guns around, they keep their guns under their jackets. But there, there's a general feeling of safety, which is a really a fantastic thing. Considering the conditions under which we live. So, m- more specifically, for more than 50 years, Israel has held the Palestinian population under its military and civilian control. Palestinian terrorism claims Jewish victims every year. So far, 19 people have been killed in shooting, stabbing, and Uh, attacks by automobiles since the beginning of 2023 alone, and we're in May. In no other country have so many Jews been killed or murdered during this period simply for being Jews. In no other country but Israel are Jews urged to bear arms for self-defense. When Israelis buy a new apartment, it comes with a protected room Built of reinforced concrete and anti-missile steel, I don't think there's any other country where you buy an apartment and you have that protection. And Israeli, Israel may soon find itself facing a direct, a direct nuclear threat from Iran that explicitly calls for our destruction. So we can only hope that our government. Uh, you know, is taking this into account. We have a government that's uh, it's laughable. I mean, the, the government here is run like a small synagogue in a, in a somewhere, and they're they're always attacking each other, various parties. It's really the politics here is really really shameful. But we have to to hope and pray that, that those in charge of our security are aware of all these things, despite all the politics. So. Uh, there, is, there are those who talk about an Israeli-Palestinian two-state solution that does not seem feasible for the free, for this foreseeable future. One state for two peoples in the entire territory between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River would undermine the Jewish majority and put an end to the Jewish state. Regardless of the identity of the government that serves in Israel, And in the Palestinian Authority, what is needed in the coming years are courageous leaders and creative thinking to manage the conflict. And that includes the education in the Palestinian Authority, where the kids are taught from pre-kindergarten that the state of Israel has no right to exist. And that is really uh, one of the really basic problems. I really don't know how much our government is doing about we have to the best of my knowledge, little or no control over the educational system in the Palestinian Authority. You hear little there, kids in pre kindergarten are taught that the state of Israel has no, no right to exist. So, uh, in fact, the security threat to Israel has always served as an important unifying factor for Israeli society. <coughs> yeah? <coughs> We derive our strength from mutual agreements and concessions among the population sectors. We have secular, and we have the ultra-orthodox, we're called the Haredim. We have Ashkenazim and Mizrahim, Jews who come from Europe, Jews who come from North Africa and the Middle East. We have right, we have left, and um, they come from all kind of backgrounds and we have to get along with each other. The the size advantage of the security sector in the first three decades of statehood and the clear political and cultural hegemony of the Labour Party led mainly to immigrants from Europe, and it shaped a social welfare Israeli society that turned culturally toward the West and perpetuated the concept of a melting pot with a clear preference for modern and progressive values. We've always looked to the West for our values, aside from the religious values, which is subject unto itself. Now, back in 1977, the Labour Party, which had uh, controlled uh, controlled the country from the very beginning in 1948, essentially lost power, and was taken over by Likud, the Heirut, and the right wing. So it marked not only the rise of the political right, it also encouraged and gave free reign to externalization of the ethnic expression and pride in particularistic identity of immigrants from Islamic countries. At the same time, the share of ultra-Orthodox and religious Jews in the Jewish population has been increasing. Now, that represents a problem unto itself, which I don't want to discuss right now. It has to do with the number of people in the, ultra, the ultra-orthodox communities who are not contributing to society. But that's a subject unto itself. The The Israeli social mainstream in general has changed and it's becoming more diverse. It's received a tailwind, if you will, from the penetration of general social and cultural transformation, essentially American. We mimic America. There's multiculturalism, individualism, and uh, the, what we learn from America, which has its own problems today, but in general what we learn from America is to recognize racial, ethnic, religious, political uh, traits. Tensions over resources of influence have intensified because the the minority groups sometimes seek to channel memories of discrimination, deprivation. People who came, for example, from North Africa, there was no doubt they, that they were discriminated against when they first came to the country, and now, of course, they're a major major uh, element of society. But a lot of them have memories of discrimination, deprivation, and uh, so that's a problem. On the other end of the social and political spectrum, there's offensive expression, expressions of cultural values different from their own in comparisons of political attitudes and action to those of uh, other regimes. The people of Israel come from all over. The, the, almost every country in the world is represented by the population here. And the question is, what have they brought with them, how much have they changed over the generations? Now, for example, there are public protests in recent months which reflect not only opposition to reform in the way judges are chosen, a, a legislative clause allowing to override the high court rulings, or definition of the Attorney General's role. These are things that are that we're fighting about now, and for several months now there have been demonstrations against changing the system. So what we're really witnessing is a struggle over the expansion and change of, of the elites, who will affect the nature and priorities of Israeli society. Now, each of the different camps here has different social and cultural values, And different worldviews and their demographic equilibrium finds them able to compete for the country's faith. The side that built and shaped Israel's values as a democratic Jewish state feels that the current regime is diverting it in other directions. The Labor Party and its constituents ran the country in the beginning, and now they feel it's being stolen from them. Consequently, long-standing disagreements about inequality, the burden of military service, taxation, funding of educational, cultural institutions, are now coming out with very great force. In other words, old feelings are not coming; are now coming out again. And I suppose one could say that's good because the country has to make sure it define itself properly. I don't believe that statements by politicians and high-profile extremists reflect the will of the majority of Israelis. Most Israelis are searching for the common we have over the differences. We're looking for the unifying over the divisive, and we're looking for compromise over argument. Div- Jews from different sectors share families. The rate of inter-ethnic marriage, marriage between secular and religious and children switching from secular to religious and and the other way around is really on the upgrade quite a bit. You find that in a lot of families. I have it even in my own family. Many neighborhoods in Israel are more ethnically mixed than they were when the state first was founded. The military units, especially those designated for combat, are now much more heterogeneous than in the past. In institutions of higher education and in professions, one encounters people from all walks of the Israeli public, including Mizrahim, Haredim, and Arabs, even though at a lower rate perhaps the best evidence of the Israel published affirmation of compromise is a steady increase in the polls and the strength of parties that embrace a moderate approach of continuity and change in the current social controversy. So the we've made tremendous progress. We're now in a sort of a crisis because they want to change some of the basic rules. the um, the, uh, from from an economic and welfare perspective, these early populations expect to grow from about 10 million today to 15 million, pe- million people by 2050. Now, this increase will not be distributed evenly among the different age groups. Uh, the uh, the size of younger and older graves don't uh, not going to the labor force is not it's some, something simple. People, by the way, people work much longer now. Uh, there was a time when retirement was considered sixty or sixty five. It's not true any longer. So. Um, but people are living longer, so in a sense, that'll exacerbate the productive population's burden on funding for children's education and pensions for older people. If you look at the adults, age 65 and over, the number's expected to increase by 1 million. So those in this demographic cohort will need medical care, welfare services, social and community support sooner or later. So right now there has to be planning and allocation of economic resources that will assure conditions for aging with dignity, dignity, dignity. Including in addition of geriatric departments, construction of new hospitals, training of more doctors and professionals, and more important, of caregivers, who have be- some of many who come from abroad. They become pillars of long-term care in ISO. So it's we can only hope that our government takes these things into account. And thank God we have arrived where we have arrived after uh, after seventy-five years, and now we have to take into consideration what the next years will look like and properly plan. So Israel is a tremendous success story. But if it's going to remain a success story, it has to plan well for the future. I just wanted to share these thoughts with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page, You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, last week, there was a new king crowned in England, King Charles III, last Saturday. So it obviously uh, heralds a new era, not just for Britain and the Commonwealth, but also for British and Israeli ties. The Nothing would crown this moment better than an official visit by the king to the Holy Land. It's very interesting. Uh, here in uh, Israel, the three languages are Hebrew, Arabic, and English. The reason English is the third language is because the British had the mandate here from after the First World War until the, the British essentially were forced out in 1948. Uh, and on the other hand, for example, Lebanon, the foreign language there is uh, French because uh, yeah, there was an agreement during the First World War between British diplomats and French diplomats dividing up the Middle East after they kicked out the Turks, and the French took what's now Syria and Lebanon, and, uh, and uh, Britain took what's now um, Israel. Of course, with the promises that they would uh, pre- prepare it for a Jewish day, which they failed to do. At any rate, it's interesting that the present uh, King Charles has actually come to Israel three times, never officially as the uh, apparent crown uh, king, the, the coming king of England. He came in uh, 2020 to the World Holocaust Forum, which is held at Yad Vashem here in uh, Jerusalem, and uh, that was marked the 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camps. And he also came for the funerals of Yitzhak Rabin, and he came for the funeral of Shimon Peres. Paris. Um, that was back in 1995 and 2016. So there is a 20-year difference between his trips. And uh, during this last trip back in 2016, he made a point of visiting the church of Mary Magdalene on the Mount of Olives, because that's the burial place of his grandmother, Princess Alice of Greece, who incidentally sheltered Jews during the Holocaust. So... He came here, but in a, in a certain sense, the visits were not really official. The And it's, someone had pointed out, it's significant that at the coronation last week, the king was anointed with oil, produced some olive trees near the church of Mary Magdalene, right here in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that Queen Elizabeth II, the, who just passed away, had a lot of invitations to come visit Israel. And although she visited, I don't know, close to like 150 countries, she chose not to visit Israel during her reign, which like like 70, 70 years. It was commonly believed that the British Foreign Office had advised the Queen not to visit Israel because they were afraid of Arab boycotts. But even after there was no real fear of that, of boycotts and oil embargoes, the Queen still not come. But she did visit Jordan, Egypt, and other countries all around Israel. The uh, Interestingly enough, after Charles' coronation last week, our Prime Minister Netanyahu issued a statement saying, along with the entire people of Israel, my wife, Sarah, and I send our wholehearted congratulations to King Charles III and Queen Camilla on their historic coronation that marked the future strengthening of the deep bond between our two nations. That's quite nice. The um, Incidentally, our president, Isaac Herzog, with his wife, represented Israel at the coronation and also, interestingly enough, was Herzog's third meeting with Charles since he became president in 2021. He met him in London shortly after he took office as his president of Israel, and he also met him at the uh, funeral of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. The, uh, during the royal reception at Buckingham House, Palace now, King Charles chatted with the Herzogs about the situation in Israel, and he reportedly commended the president for his mediation efforts in the government uh, judicial overhaul plan that's taking place here in Israel right now. Interesting, Britain's chief rabbi, his name is Ephraim Mervis, who was knighted by Charles last year, and his wife Valerie were inv- invited to spend Friday night at Clarence House to allow them to walk to Westminster Abbey for the coronation and avoid desecrating the Shabbat. The, co- the coronation was on Saturday. And a kosher caterer provided meals for both the Herzogs and the Mervices, and the chief rabbi's office praised a respectful, sensitive way that the royal palace have dealt with the situation, which really is quite something when you think about It doesn't make big headlines, but it's important. Incidentally, there have been members of the royal family who have visited Israel in the past, both officially and unofficially. Back in 2007, Prince Edward, the king's younger brother, who's now the Duke of Edinburgh, visited Israel at the invitation of the Israel Youth Award Program, which was an offshoot of a program initiated 50 years earlier by his father, Prince Philip. And back in 1994, Prince Philip himself traveled to Israel to visit the tomb of his mother, Princess Alice, as Princess Alice of Greece. In 2018, Prince William, the king's oldest son, who is now first in line for the throne, made an official visit to Israel. And they had a reception at the residence of the United Kingdom ambassador. And uh, he, he, had, of course, had to refer to the Israeli conflict. And I quote what he said. I know I share a desire with all of you and with your neighbors for a just and lasting peace, which is nice. And at the same time, the Guardian newspaper in England reported the foreign office view for decades has been that such a visit was contingent on progress in the peace process, which means William's visit was being seen by Israelis as a significant moment. Unfortunately, the peace process really hasn't taken off much since then. So uh, it, it would be a nice now, uh, it's a good time for President Herzog, our president, to issue an official invitation for King Charles III and Queen Camilla to visit Israel and for the king and queen to accept it, something that his mother never did. The, uh, in addition to uh, becoming the first British monarch, to pay an official visit to the Holy Land, which be a truly historic, uh, might see for himself as, uh, as something that uh, it's important. The, uh, it's interesting, by the way, was pointed out. I saw a note in the paper. There's a British oak tree that, we, that was planted uh, by when uh, Charles visited here. And uh, it was planted together with former President Reuben Rivlin, and uh, it's grown here in Jerusalem. So you might want to see the the tree the tree that was planted by uh, by an Englishman here in Jerusalem. At any rate, this is a new royal era, and uh, as I said, because the British had the mandate here after the First World War until they actually kicked out in 1948, that is why English is a very common language here in the United States. And if you live in in certain places in Israel, like Jerusalem, for example, you can get by with uh, English only. We have a lot of friends who have come on Aliyah from England and the United States, and they really know very, very little Hebrew. We often get requests from friends of ours to translate letters that they get, written in Hebrew, and and uh, they, they were asked to help them when they have to go visit offices, official offices here in uh, in uh, Jerusalem, because they don't speak any Hebrew at all. So you can get by without without Hebrew and without Arabic here in Jerusalem if you know English. If you know French or Russian. It's not quite as easy now. I want to go on to a different topic. I felt, by the way, I felt it was important to say a few uh, few things about the new king because, after all, the change in the monarchy after more than seventy years is something that's to be noted. And uh, as I like to tell my uh, my British friends that in my lifetime. I've had the privilege of living in two countries that threw the British out, the United States and Israel. And generally, my friends, my British friends smile when they say it, but I don't know what they're really thinking. At any rate, I want to go uh, to a different subject altogether, the, uh, and that is that many of Israel's contributions to the world are widely recognized, but a lot are less known. Israeli technological, scientific, and medical, and all kind of innovations have improved the lives of people all across the world. Now, one of the things, one of the fields where Israel is really a a groundbreaker, if I can use that word, is water. Israel is making an impact because Israel is a country that has no water. The only water we have is the Mediterranean Sea, which is nice. We also have the Dead Sea. And we have the Lake of uh, Tiberias, Lake of the Galilee, but they are not really big water sources until Israel developed them, particularly the Sea of Galilee. The it, 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 Israel has developed something called drip irrigation. They've developed wastewater reclamation, desalination, and technology that creates water out of air, practically. In addition, Israel assists global efforts to combat climate changes. Climate-related enterprise make up 10% of recent high-tech startups here in Israel, climate-related enterprises. Now, Israel, whose proactive problem-solving approach combines pragmatism and idealism, believes that sharing solutions not only brings tangible benefits to the participants also generates an a ecosphere of international collaboration that advances common interests. For a lot of countries, particularly in Africa, that is, Israel really helps, and no one else helps in the way Israel does. So we live in very complicated times. There are a multiplicity of challenges including uh, climate change and, of course, terrorism. As a result, the need for combined action is more acute. So Israel is not alone in acknowledging the importance of unity. However, since its founding 75 years ago, Israel has had to contend with boycotts, both by those who want to see its destruction and by those who mistakenly believe that isolating Israel could somehow resolve a conflict not of its own choice. No. fortunately, that feeling, which is really counterproductive, is is fading. The number of states in the region still challenging the Jewish state's right to exist has reduced and decreased drastically. Now, in the eyes today, In the eyes of many formerly hostile states and their people, Israel is no longer part of the problem. It's part of the solution. For example, the Abraham Accords are one visible outcome of this change of attitude. The Accords are a framework of agreements between Israel and other countries in this region. Beyond establishing uh, diplomatic relations, Collaborative efforts in various fields have flourished, so obviously it's Israel's hope that additional countries join in and make progress because it really, we, Israel can help its neighboring countries here to help the Middle East evolve. So the, uh, the truth of the matter is, Israel helped countries in this area long before the Abraham Accords. For example, back as far as 1958, the foreign minister who at that time was Golda Meir initiated something called Mashav, M-A-S-H-A-V. It was an international cooperation program that continues up to this very day because the leaders of Israel believed that we can share our knowledge, knowledge that we developed and expertise that we developed with other countries in Asia, Africa, and even the Americas, particularly South America. And many of our governments looked upon this as a national mission. So, so it's interesting. Someone pointed out that Israel's as, aspiration to help make our planet a better place and it is rooted in a Jewish tradition called Tikkun Olam, which is to repair the world. And values such as equality and respect for du- human dignity and compassion are all part of this Tikkun Olam to make the world a better place. The now uh, Israel has uh, the um, the governor of Florida came to visit uh, uh, it with a whole a group of people. A uh, week and a half or two weeks ago, a businessman and who um, were interested in making relations with companies in Israel. So uh, that that's really nice. The uh, and on the other hand, as far as Florida's Florida is concerned, there was a building collapsed in a place called Surf, Surfside a couple of years ago, and Israel quickly dispatched a search and rescue team to assist with the efforts and. Um, Right now there are joint business and research ventures uh, between Israel and the state of Florida. There's something called the Florida-Israel Innovation Partnership in which uh, the, there are two, uh, two uh, organizations, one in Florida called Space Florida and one in Israel called the Israel Innovation Authority and the in East invests $1 million annually and joint aerospace projects. These are things that are under the headlines. You don't hear about this. When the mayor of Florida came uh, to Israel two weeks ago, uh, he led a group of people, uh, including the mayor of Miami-Dade County, and it was a 60-person delegation with the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce at, and the, the uh, Miami mayor uh, also visited on a separate mission. So it's interesting that Florida, among the American states, plays a special role to match the unique connection as with Israel. South Florida alone is home to the third largest Jewish population in the world during the winter months and has one of the most active Jewish communities, and it's no surprise that the largest Jewish delegation in the world to visit Israel two weeks ago for the 70th anniversary was an 800-member Greater Miami Jewish Federation delegation. That's something you don't see in the headlines, but it's true. By the way, Uh, The largest celebration of Israel's anniversary in the world, outside of Israel, was held in Miami. There were almost 7,000 people, youth, from Jewish schools in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties coming together at a sports stadium. This took place while the biggest U.S.-Israel community celebration outside York, New York and Los Angeles was held in Hollywood, Florida. So South Florida is leading the way in relations with the state of Israel. So it's almost like, uh, it's, it's, of all the states in the United States, Israel really, you know, when there's a very large Jewish population in New York, and you always think of, somehow you relate to Jews to New York and Israel to New York, but it turns out that over the years, uh, Florida is becoming our sister state more than any other state in the United States. Something uh, no one could have imagined 10 years ago, but it's now a fact. And uh, you have to realize, too, as I think in the back of my mind, the uh, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is thinking of uh, running for president of the United States. And he has a large Jewish population in Florida. So obviously it looks for good for him to be friendly with the state of Israel. It can't harm his election chances. Anyway, I just want to share some of these sorts of listeners. I'll be back after the break.
1: Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is
0: the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and since we are in the period, which is really the really the holiday period in Israel, and when I say that, I don't mean the traditional holidays. We have our traditional holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we have the three festivals like Sukkot and Pesach and Shavuot, but there's a period between uh, Passover, Pesach, And um, the uh, uh, Jerusalem Independence Day, which will be coming up in a couple of weeks, and it's sort of a special Israeli holiday time. Uh, It includes, uh, of course, Memorial Day for the uh, Shoah and the Memorial Day for Israelis who were killed, and, of course, Israeli Independence Day and Jerusalem Day. So, from essentially from uh, Passover until Jerusalem, there's a special Israeli holiday period. And people, I don't know, maybe it's my imagination. people seem to be in a better mood uh, during that period of time. At any rate, um I want to say a couple of things about the a retrospective about the country. I've probably spoken about this many times, but because we're in this period of the year, I want to remind the listeners of things that I, unfortunately, I I think uh, we uh, we tend to forget. When Israel came into being 1948, uh, you have to realize six million people were killed in Europe and Israel had lost one-third of its uh, uh, population and had an exile lasting almost 1,900 years. And oddly enough, both at the UN, both the United States and Russia approved. The United States and Russia didn't agree about anything. That was the, the beginning of the Cold War, and that they both voted to bring Israel into existence. And then after the state was declared, how many Jews were living in Israel? about 650,000 Jews, and they had very few allies, and they were surrounded by seven Arab countries that attacked the state. So it, it's interesting, the, the three years after the Holocaust and surrounded by all enemies all around on every border, Israel came into existence. Now, from 1948, In 1951, Israel's Jewish population more than doubled, from 650,000 to about 1,400,000. And between 1948 and 2022, Israel absorbed approximately 3.4 million new immigrants. There is nothing in human history that matches that. The United States, uh, you know, is a great country of immigration. Millions of people came to the United States. But you know, when you think of the how the our our population increased in that short period of time, is absolutely amazing. It's miraculous. It's never been done anywhere by any country. Another part of the miracle is the revival of Hebrew as a spoken language. When I was a kid, and for, for hundreds of years, Hebrew was a language that we used in prayer. And uh, interesting, the, the one of the founders of modern Hebrew was uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, and he one of the things he did that was kind of, it's interesting, He had a son named Itamar, and uh, he was born in 1882, and the parents refused to speak to him in any language other than Hebrew. So he was probably the only native speaker in the world at the end of the 19th century. Today, there are more than nine and a half million people speaking Hebrew including Israeli Arabs. So the revival of a dead language is without precedent. By the way, there are certain neighborhoods in Israel, the Hasidic neighborhoods, where they ins- uh, insist on speaking Yiddish. But that's a story unto itself. Uh, another thing you can look at is the Israeli army, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. The last time the Jewish people had an army was during the Bar Kokhba revolt. It was back in the uh, second century. Now, since the state was founded, the Israeli army has become one of the best armies in the world and is defending itself, us, defending Israel against uh, Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran. So it's really fantastic. Now, right now, Israel is the only place where Shabbat and the Jewish holidays are are national holidays. The government buildings have a Chanukah on top on the day before Passover. Lag you can spell you, like the day before Passover, you can smell the chametz burning. And, and on Log Brom, you can watch the bonfires glowing. I mentioned on a previous portion of the program that when I flew into Israel, it's actually like a cloud over the country. The uh, Now, it's interesting also, it's uh, traditional to, uh, on the, uh, the holiday of Shavuot, it's traditional to eat dairy products. And uh, the... Cheese sales in Israel increased by two hundred and thirty percent before the Shavuot holiday. The Israel Israelis these these are uh, I found these numbers and I I really found them uh, fascinating. As I said, cheese sales increased by two hundred and thirty percent for Shavuot. Israelis consumed two hundred and fifty grams of honey. Per person during Tishrei. It's traditional in Jewish homes to, uh, when you make a blessing on the bread during Rosh Hashanah and before Yom Kippur and on Sukkot, to dip the bread in uh, honey. Israelis consume 250 grams of honey per person during the month of Tishrei. And uh, it, it's unbelievable. Now, that, that is in terms, if you will, of the Jews and Jewish religion, but there's other things too. Since the Jewish National Fund was founded in 1901, a little over about 120 years ago, it has planted over 250 million trees. Israel is the only country in the world that ended the 20th century with more trees than it had 100 years ago. In in 1948, roughly 2% of Israel was covered with trees, and the amount covered with trees today is 8.5%, and that is without precedent. Now, you look at water. 60% of Israel is der- desert. You look at the map, the entire area south of Beersheba is desert. You can drive for miles all you see is desert, so the, uh, the, the population of Israel has grown 12-fold since 1948, as I said. And in 2009, the Canary, our lake, was in danger of drying up, uh, the, and the, Israel dealt with this crisis in three ways. It's built over 240 reservoirs and dams. Close to 90% of wastewater is now recycled for agriculture. And Israel has built five major desalination plants with two more on the way. As a result, Israel now produces 20% water more water than it needs. So we went from a country that was plotting to have more water and now we produce twenty percent more than we need. The hey, look look up uh, another subject. Uh, 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 Sixty three Israeli companies were listed on NASDAQ, more than those in any other foreign country. But it's not just the number of startups; it's the inventions themselves that improve the lives of billions of people. Ways mobilize USB drives uh, and something called WaterGen that produces clean drinking water from the air. There's something called ReWalk, which enables paraplegics to walk again, and something called PillCam, a medical camera, which can be swallowed. All of these are Israeli invention. In 2023, and I mentioned this previously, Israel is ranked number four in the World Happiness Index beside Finland, Denmark, Iceland, Israel, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, Luxembourg, and New Zealand, which is interesting. All these other countries and the top happy countries in the world are not surrounded by enemies. Nobody's trying to attack Finland or Denmark or Iceland or the Netherlands or Sweden or Norway, or Switzerland, or Luxembourg, or New Zealand. Israel's a country has been its war since its very existence, and it's known to the top happiest countries in the world. The, uh, how, why is it? Uh, and maybe it's our emphasis, it could well be, it's been suggested, it's because we have a tremendous emphasis on family and children and the feeling that all Jews are responsible for one another. Israel is one of the few countries in the world where the birth rate is such as to increase the population. Most of the countries, particularly the Western countries, the birth rate is such that the population is going down. Now, these are all the nice things that I mentioned, but there's some areas... Which are still problematic, and they have to be pointed out. Much of the world blames Israel for the fact that Palestinians are still living in refugee camps instead of their own state. And this is not borne out by the facts. Abba Ibn in December 1973 said, and I quote very famously, The Arabs never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, which is true. In 1947, Israel accepted the UN partition plan, and the Arab League rejected it. After the Six-Day War, many Israelis wanted to return territory for the sake of peace, the land for peace, and the Arab League responded with the three no's, no peace with Israel, no negotiation, no negotiation with Israel, and no recognition of Israel. In 1993, Israel and the Palestinians signed the Oslo Accords. Yet by 2000, almost 300 Israelis have been killed in terrorist attacks. And uh, in July 2000, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak offered Yasser Arafat of the territories, which was a terrible mistake. But Arafat refused and started the Second Intifada, which lasted for five years and claimed the lives of some 4,000 Israelis and Palestinians. In 2005, Israel withdrew from Gaza and kicked all the Jews out of Gaza. I was there then. I was... uh, representing uh, the radio, uh, Israel National Radio, as a correspondent in the last several days when the Jews were being kicked out of uh, Gaza. And the Israelis left behind synagogues and greenhouses and all kinds of things, particularly the greenhouses that the the, uh, Arabs, the Palestinians, could have developed. Instead, they destroyed them. Since uh, not 2001, Hamas and other terrorist organizations in Gaza have shot more than 20,000 missiles at Israel. And so because of that, since 2001, Israel has to wage 11 military campaigns against Gaza. They all add up. It's unbelievable. The uh, Some people claim that the Palestinian uh, leadership is the problem, that people really want peace, but that's not correct. An in-depth analysis of 300 surveys conducted by four major Palestinian research institutes revealed that from 1993 to 2000, 42% of Palestinians favored armed attacks against Israeli civilians. From 2000-2015, a solid majority supported attacks, and on occasion, on occasion, specific suicide attacks on civilians were approved by approximately 80% of Palestinians. Now, this is, It's a situation that we have to live with. Now, many people believed every problem has a solution. But we know from failed wars in other parts of the world, like in Iraq and in Afghanistan, you cannot impose democracy on societies which have never had a democracy and have never edu- educated toward democracy. The overwhelming majority of Israelis believe if Israel withdraws from more territories, it will endanger the very existence of the state, without leading to any solution. As long as the Arabs are not educating, that is, the Palestinians are not educating toward peace, there will simply be no peace. Now, there's another problem has nothing to do with the Palestinians. it has to do with the ultra-Orthodox population of Israel, which is called the Haredi population. When Israel was founded, Ben-Gurion gave 400 Haredi yeshiva students an exemption from army service because it was felt that because of what had happened in the Holocaust, it was very, very important to again put the the Jewish education traditional Jewish uh, education as a top priority. Since under uh, uh, 1977, under the Likud government, uh, the Likud took over in nineteen seven, the number has grown from 400 to over 60,000. The result is that Israel created a situation where some 13% of the population Do not study the required course subjects in school, do not serve any IDF, and do not start working before the age of 30. This behavior is diametrically opposed to Jewish law and is simply not sustainable. If these people don't go to work, who is going to support them? Now that as far as what we call the Haredi population is concerned, but there were also religious Zionists. Until the early 2000s, the the so-called Maftal, the religious Zionist party, consisted of modern Orthodox Jews who combined work, army service, and Torah study, and did their utmost to coexist with secular and traditional Jews. My kids and my grandchildren went to Yeshivot and served in the army. Now. Today, the religious Zionist party has turned to the right, and the uh, and it is a serious problem. The religious Zionists of years ago were much more moderate and much more willing to compromise, and we have a problem now that the religious Zionist parties are much more right wing. And they're part of the government now, and are less willing to cooperate. Now, there are those who claim that Jewish education in general in Israel is one of Israel's greatest failures. Most Jews who attend the secular public schools in Israel have never studied basic Jewish texts like Mishnah, Talmud, or the Sidur, and their knowledge of Judaism is extremely superficial. The the, uh, the the solution of course to make sure that every Israeli receives a Jewish education not to simply want them to become religious but have Jewish education and know what it means to be Jewish The uh, and so the, the these are some of the things uh, that go on in Israel and uh, it, it, there are problems. The, uh, it, what the, the rabbit for itself, for example, is, is, is controlled by the, uh, right wing chief rabbit is controlled by, uh, by the, uh, right wing Haridee. And, uh, as a result, approximately 25% of the young couples can now get married abroad. So what the problem is, I guess, is some form of religious pluralism. So, uh, Either the state should fund no rabbis or the state should fund all rabbis. I don't know. So uh, the current uh, crisis with government prices we have now, which is another subject, is it results in the fact that there's no constitution. So uh, it's very hard to write a constitution in Israel. And we'll see what it'll be. The, uh, if the, uh, it's interesting. We have the first Jewish state in almost two thousand years. We've done wonders. We've done miracles. We still have a lot of problems. The, uh, the, the we will solve our major problems only if we work together as one united people. The, the the secret, I guess, of redemption is not for us to stop fighting. is is for us to stop fighting with each other and start working with each other. And uh, it, when we don't work with each other, we're in deep trouble. Anyhow, anyway, it was a, a quick review of Israel at 75, and I did this because we are between Independence Day and Jerusalem Day. I just wanted to share my thoughts with the listeners. I'll be back after the break.
1: Where can you get the inside news on Israel. At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.
0: You're back again with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about a subject that's been around as long as there have been Jews, essentially. And I'm sorry to have to bring it up again, except several things have happened in the last couple of weeks that uh, bring this issue to the forefront again. I'm referring to anti-Semitism, which is a fancy word for hatred of Jews. The reason I'm bringing it up is because May is Jewish American Heritage Month. It was established back in 2006 in America, in the United States, as a bipartisan emt to educate Americans on the contributions and achievements of Jewish Americans nationwide. The emphasis, emphasis there seems to be Jewish-Americans. It's called Jewish-American Heritage Month. They all—they have all kinds of heritage months in the United States, and they decided they're going to have one for the Jews, too. And echoing the need for this designation this year, the New York City Council passed a resolution recognizing April 9th, 29th as End Jew Hatred Day. Very interesting name. It's an attempt to fight back against the New York City's disturbing rise in anti-Semitism over the last couple of years. Now, one would think that a proposal to fight hatred of any kind would be, uh, not be controversial and yet some members of the New York City Council voted against the the resolution for uh, recognizing April 29th as End Jew Hatred Day. Now, while this fight against anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews is seemingly an issue that should continue to be bipartisan, You would expect all sides of the political spectrum, right and left, uh, would uh, agree to such a thing. Um, Now, what we have, unfortunately, is members of all sides who either won't stand up to this hatred, or in some cases, even exacerbate this phenomenon. But yet, these members are often given a pass because of two reasons. One is they say that there are worse anti-Semitism on the other side, or they say when it comes to Israel, they say they have no problem with Israel being a Jewish state. They hate Israel for its policies. Now, primarily on the right, anti-Semitism usually takes a form of age-old anti-Semitic conspiracy. Conspiracies. So these these are extremists. This is going on for years. So the, on the right, it's pretty common. So one can it cannot ignore. However, there is a surging flow of anti-Semitism from the left. This anti-Semitism is generally disguised as anti-Zionism. In other words, the denial of the Jewish right to self-determination in their homeland. Now, you can uh, po- you can criticize the policies of the government, uh, the Israeli government, without being an anti-Semite. However, this line is often crossed by people claiming to be upholding progressive values, yet go so far. to deny the Jewish people's right to a state, and demonize Israel on a level that sometimes attributes horrible injustices the world over onto it. Right now on the streets of major U.S. cities, Jews are attacked uh, quite often in the last couple years by those who claim to be pro-Palestinian, but are in truth anti-Semites who have learned to hide their hatred and get away with their actions by claiming it is something other than anti-Semitism, like they're pro-Palestinian, they're not anti-Semites. And this is the case, by the way, of a a series of attacks in 2021 and 22, when a perpetrator perpetrator claiming to be pro-Palestinian attacked innocent Jewish bystanders. Beyond individuals, there are also so-called progressive movements that continue to promote anti-Semitic views. A clear example is, is something called the Mapping Project, which claims to be fight against colonialism, displacement, and ethnic cleansing. Now, all of those things are quite honorable goals that do very little to hide the fact that the project is in essence a how to guide for protesting against or, in the extreme, even attacking Jewish institutions. Now, if you look at the Democratic Party, one need not look any further than the so called SQUAD, a group of Democrats and representatives in Congress who continually spout anti Semitic tropes have nothing to do with advancing the Palestinian cause. For example, a a member of that squad, uh, Representative Ilhan Omar, wrote a tweet in 2019 claiming that support for Israel is all about the Benjamins. And the Benjamins, of course, is the... uh, Benjamin Franklin is the figure that appears in a $100 bill. So referring to Benjamins... Harkens back to the claim that Jews use money to get their way. This is this type of insinuation by a member of the American Congress is only compounded by her multiple claims that the American Jews have dual loyalty and attacked an anti Semites have throughout history used against the Jews. Dual loyalty. Now, along these same lines, and it's really the reason I bring this up when we're talking, because we're talking about a a member of the American Congress. This U.S. representative, Rashida Tlaib, plans to hold an event in the Capitol building opposing Israel's establishment this week. The, the, The it's, it's set for, it was set for Wednesday and uh, I don't know if it was held I'm, I'm uh, actually recording this program on Tuesday, I have to check tomorrow whether indeed this uh, took place but the uh, it's called Nakba 75 and the Palestinian people and the word Nakba uh, which is a, a catastrophe in, in Arabic, and that's the word the Arabs use. They talk about the establishment of Israel. And they're going to have this um, Nakba meeting uh, and a 400-seat auditorium in the U.S. Capitol Visitor Center. As I said, I'm recording this on Tuesday because I'll be busy tomorrow. I'll have to check, indeed, whether this event takes place. The This Nakba Day, according to way they're planning it, portray the Palestinians as victims rather than party to a conflict with Israel. Keep in mind, of course, I, I don't think I have to remind the, the listeners In 1948, five Arab armies attacked the Jewish state with support from Palestinian leadership. Now, the partners of these U.S. representatives organized the event, include organizations supporting the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement against Israel and NGOs that have expressed support for terrorism. For example, is a group called the Jewish Voice for Peace. It's glorified the first intifada in which Palestinians killed close to 300 Israelis and the uh, Institute for Middle East Understanding, who lionized the Palestinian Islamic Jihad leader, Khadir Adnan, who died last week after a hunger strike in in an Israeli prison, and Hassan Kanafani who orchestrated the 1972 Lord Airport Massacre, in which 26 people, including U.S. citizens, were murdered. Now, events at the Capitol Visitor Center can only be held by request from a member of the U.S. Congress or an officer of Congress indicating Tlaib's direct involvement in organizing the event. Now, Tlaib is a U.S., uh, Rishana Tlaib, Tlaib is a U.S. representative. It's only through her can a visitor center be uh, uh, um, uh, uh, be organized. At, the, at the, Only through a U.S. representative can you have an event at the Cap- Capitol Center. It's interesting, by the way, The Tlaib herself is the daughter of Palestinians, whose grandmother lives in the West Bank today, and she's repeatedly come under fire for remarks related to Israel and the Jews, and even Holocaust distortion. Tlaib hung a map in her office that Congress that did not have Israel on it, portraying the whole land as Palestine, and has repeatedly called Israel an apartheid state. The so the. uh, it's pretty shameful the, uh, that an American congressman, a congresswoman, should be an open anti-Semite and even organize an event in the U.S. Capitol that's essentially a uh, anti-Semitic um, congress, if you will. The, uh, se- Furthermore, well, since I'm talking about um, anti-Semitism, something that won't go away, the United States and the United Kingdom are expected to stay away from the U.N. General Assembly's first ever commemoration of Nakba Day, which is scheduled for May 15th, next week. It's a, it's a um, pro-Palestinian meeting, uh, the, uh, which be held at the U.N., and Israel called on UN member states to shun the event. The, uh, it's interesting, uh, the, the ambassador to the United Nations of Israel named Gilad Erdan said, Israel will not be uh, pressurized pressured by this stand, slanderous campaign to rewrite history and therefore calls on all members of the UN who truly support reconciliation? Not to attend this shameful and anti uh, anti Semitic event. Now, May fifteenth. What's the importance of that date? It's traditionally the date that Palestinians mark what for them is a catastrophe. That's what Nakba means. What is it? What is May fifteenth? That is the establishment of the state of Israel. Um. The uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is expected to address the UN along with UN Under Secretary General of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, a woman uh, named Rosemary DiCarlo, and also UNRWA Commissioner General Philip Lazzarini and all kind of other uh, uh, representatives. The, the speeches are scheduled to take place on May 15th in a morning session held by the UN Commission on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, while the commemora, commemora, commemorative events will have music, videos, and personal testimony be held at the UN General Assembly on May 15th at uh, 6 p.m. in the UN, which is a far cry from when I was a kid, when the UN was first established. It was supposed to be peace to the world, and it's turned into an arm of anti-Semitism. See, the, uh, there is a, um, a, a Palestinian Authority envoy to New York who told a UN committee last week, he hoped that countries would attend, see how the Palestinians told their story, because according to him, and I quote, 75 years of Nakba is something that should not be acknowledged as a normal day. And he hoped there would be some 1,000 attendees from outside the diplomatic community to the event, explaining there were already 500 people who have registered to come. Now, it's interesting, this event was instituted in November as part of the annual package of United Nations resolutions favoring the Palestinians. 90, 90 countries, 90, less than half of the UN's 193 member states voted in favor of commemorating the Nakba. Half of the states in the United Nations voted in favor of this event, which is anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, and anti-Israel. Only 30 countries opposed the motion, including the United States and the United Kingdom. So together with the 47 others who abstained, they didn't vote against, they abstained, uh, they, it was approved. The uh, interest, interesting, by the way, there was no decision taken to commemorate the expulsion of nine hundred thousand Jews from Arab lands, which was the result of Israel uh, Israel's creation. So this is a new low for the UN. Really, a new a, a new low, and the um, our representative, the Israeli representative to UN, Gilad Erdan. And I quote him. He said, instead of commemorating the real Nakba, the expulsion of almost a million Jews from Arab countries following the establishment of the state of Israel, this biased UN organization is distorting its own history, ignoring Israel's establishment and the Palestinian rejection of the 1947 the United Nations partition plan. The, the Palestinians are bringing cat." Kat- Catastrophe upon themselves by their hate and terror attacks, and 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 bringing a person like Mahmoud Abbas to speak there, he's a Holocaust denier who refuses to recognize legitimacy of the Jewish state and of the Jewish people. So, the interesting enough the. Uh, A cable was sent by Erdogan, our representative of the UN, calling for an international campaign to counter the event. The foreign ministry, uh, it's our foreign ministry, Israeli foreign ministry, uh, sent word to all the um, Israeli embassies to try to convince the countries in, in the countries in which they're stationed not to take part in these events and to speak out against it whenever possible. the Our Foreign Ministry has a deputy director general for international organizations. His name is Amir Weisbrad, and he cabled diplomats telling them to convey the message that the event at the UN totally adopts the Palestinian narrative which opposes Israel's right to exist. Countries that voted in favor of the event we're told that while they may be traditionally support the pro-Palestinian resolutions, which, are, by the way, are brought forward each year in the UN, this is this is different this year because it, it seeks to deny Israel's right to exist. so, it's a new low for the United Nations. The by the way, the um, the B'nai Rith has an NGO called. Uh, Jewish NGO B'nai B'rith International, is circling in a petition calling on officials from UN member states not to attend this event at the the UN. They're also, uh, it's really really remarkable that the, 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 the UN will host a cultural Nakba Day event featuring Palestinian musicians and a photo exhibit a, a, a film will be shown by a UK-based Israeli writer named Alan Papp, P-A-P-P-E, once called one of the world's sloppiest historians and one of the most dishonest historians by the New Republic, who's dedicated his career to claiming Israel ethnically cleansed the Palestinians. So... Uh, Interesting, uh, interesting enough, last the Israeli mission to the United Nations set up an exhibit ex- exhibition at the UN about this what they call the Jewish Nakba, which is the expulsion of about 900,000 Jews from Arab countries and, and Iran following the establishment of Israel. So the point that I'm trying to make here is the United Nations was supposed to came into being after the Second World War uh, to to bring about world world peace has turned into an arm of anti-Semitism very sadly that's really a terrible thing to report but these are the facts so uh, I hate to end the program on a sad note but uh, I'm afraid we have to be realistic again if you want to write to me please write to Shapiro at yahoo.com j-a-y-m-s-h-a-p-i-o I-R-O at yahoo.com. I really like to hear from the listeners. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel.